fast forward now to um, August of 1972, another incident that you would certainly be aware of was the Dog Day. I, I was going to say Rock. Dog Day Afternoon made famous in the movie. You got it. So made famous in the movie. Uh, Al Pacino uh, and John Casale. There you go. John yeah. Cassell was Fredo in The Godfather. That's right. That's right. Very good. So um, there was no hostage team there. So what happened was there was a, a sergeant who was played by, um, oh, I forgot his name. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll try to think of it. But he uh, he was, uh, his real life role, the, the real sergeant, he was from like Safe Walk and Trust. Truck squad, if you remember a that. unit that no longer exists. I love no. those old units, right? What the hell does Safe Loft and Truck do? Not yeah. much. <laughs> journey, maybe Charles Journey, I think his name might be. Yeah, great, great actor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he portrayed that that sergeant. And he had no negotiation experience, you know. I mean, there was no negotiation team to draw upon, you know, experience to draw upon. So it was really negotiating off the cuff. And the end result of that was uh, the uh, the John Casal, um, his name was Sal Nutriali, uh, uh, the part that was played by John Casal. He was killed, if you saw the movie, uh, at the end of the movie, when they went from point A to point B, to point A right. being to Kennedy Airport. And it was a plan in place, and that was how it was going to go down. In fact, the movie is pretty accurate, um, Bill. I was able to find, uh, this is when I was still as a CO, I was able to, I came in contact with a guy by the name of Jim Murphy. Jim Murphy was the agent, the FBI agent that actually drove them from the bank to the to the airport. That was the guy that said, "Sal, could you put the gun facing up? I don't want any accidental discharge." There it goes, accidental discharge again. <laughs> Jim Murphy. That was Jim Murphy. So Jim Murphy, when I learned to listen, oh my God, he said, "Would you be willing to come?" I used to do a training twice a year, you know, biannual training. Come and talk to the negotiators about what happened that day. I love it. He's got his own investigative business now. Yeah. So he came down and he said the movie was pretty accurate with some changes. And if you remember in the movie, uh, the gun was hidden in the armrest yeah. of the driver's side and all he had to do was put it down. Well, that that's, that was not the case. What it, so they had, when they brought the, the vehicle to the location, to the bank, they had hid the, the uh, gun underneath the floor mats. And when uh, John Walter hits, that was uh, you know the Sonny character, when he went through the vehicle, he checked everything, except he didn't check under the floor mats. So they right. took a chance at that. So as soon as, as Jim Murphy got kind of got into the car, he was he bent down and he, he had the gun immediately. Right. And he hid it under his under his uh, under his. Seat. That's that's a ballsy move, though. It really was. Yeah. They got away with it. So that's how I guess one. I mean, could you ever see the department doing that today? No. No. I couldn't either. You know. No. No. So that's how that went down. Then followed Bill one month later in uh, September. That was August. I'm sorry. Yeah. So September of 1972, the Munich Olympics occurred. The tra the uh, the master of the Munich Olympics. If you remember that, the group of oh uh, yes, uh, the, the um, Israeli Olympic team was taken yeah. hostage. Yeah, they took they, over the dormitories, housing. They the started Israel. executing them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the end result of that was 11 Israeli athletes and coaches were killed. And there was five, five of the um, the terrorists that uh, perpetrated the act. Right. So it was at that point we had a chief on the job who was the commander of the special operations division at the time, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Eisdorfer, and his last name Chief Eisdorfer, and he was of the Jewish faith, and he was watching these events unfold as they were occurring. And he became concerned about it to the point where he approached the then police commissioner, Patrick B. Murphy, 
and said to him, um, you know, this is something that could very easily happen here in New York City with the large Jewish population that we have. And he said, we should have detectives trained as hostage negotiators. So Commissioner Murphy at the time says, uh, all right, good idea, um, I guess, uh, put something on paper and let me see it. So uh, they put something together, they, they did check the database and they find Harvey Schlossberg, who at the time, uh, he was, uh, I think he just made detective, but before that he was directing traffic in Midtown traffic area, he was a traffic. <laughs> What a waste of talent, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's the yeah. psychology, you know? So uh, they bring him in, and, uh, and Chief ISO officer says to him, uh, this is what we want you to do, develop guidelines for the you know, hostage for hostage taking. So Harvey says uh, to the chief, well, chief, that's not what I do. I see patients one-on-one. -on -one. And of course, the typical NYPD response was, we'll do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I love so that. So he went out, and he, yeah, he conducted research, and he came up with the guidelines that are still practiced throughout the day. Bill, through every hostage negotiation team throughout the entire world. So he, he must have pretty been a pretty damn smart guy then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he did that, and uh, they were starting to train captains and above down at Floyd Bennett Field when all this, uh, you know, there was no hostage team yet, but just some of the psychological guidelines for hostage, for hostage taking. Right. Then fast forward to January. Uh, it was actually January. I remember the dates because I've been teaching it so long. January 14th. Of 1973, we had the John and Al Sporting Star robbery in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. For those of the uh, audience might not remember that, it was a, a sporting goods store where they sell guns. And at the then, the then uh, um, radical group called the Black Liberation Army, right, go in, it was four of them, commit a robbery of the place. And I was having a police officer on a foot post, just had me walk in. Someone said, Hey, officer, something's going on in there. He peeks in and he sees these four guys with guns doing the robbery. He calls it in. And all of a sudden, it winds up being a 43-hour a, a hostage siege. Wow. 43 hours. And the end result of that was uh, one of our police officers, uh, Patrolman, which was the name of the rank at the time, Patrolman uh, Stephen Gilroy from Emergency Service Squad 6 was killed as a result of that. And two of the police officers uh, were, were shot and wounded. Thankfully, they survived. Just a quick lesson, if I may. And, um, sure. How Steve Gilroy was killed. It's something that... Uh, we learned a lesson that we learned uh, in out, out of World War One, actually, in the foxholes in France at the time. Uh, it's called three on a match, and three on a match was uh, what they what came out of World War One on three on a match was they would try to save matches, conserve matches. So there was three soldiers in a foxhole, and they all had cigarettes, and they wanted to conserve the matches. They tried to light the three cigarettes with one match. So when they struck the match, there was a sniper out there lurking, and he was alerted to the match. Right. When they lit the second cigarette, he scoped in, and when they lit the third cigarette, he took his shot and killed that third soldier. So something, a similar concept happened with Stephen Gilroy. So if anybody's familiar with you know, the Williamsburg section on Broadway, it's an elevated train structure along it. So he was, he was hidden behind a structure, on the destructive pillar. And what he did, he looked out once, and when he did that, the first time, he alerted the gunman that he was there, one of the gunmen. When he looked out the second time, he scoped in on him, and when he looked out the third time, took a shot. Hit him right here. Wow. His body was lying in the street, and they couldn't get to him. You know, one of the officers up from North Service drove up, um, but couldn't get to him. So finally, they had to call him. Uh, we had an armored personnel carrier. 
think it's still there on Floyd Bennett Field, as a matter of fact. They had to truck it in from Floyd Bennett Field. It took hours. To get yeah, it. yeah. And finally, they put the armored personnel carrier between Stephen Gilroy and, and the store where they can retrieve the body and get it out of there. But can you imagine watching your dead colleagues? No, uh, horrible. Yeah, oh my God, what they went through. So it was at that point uh, that uh, Simon I, uh, Chief Eisdorfer went back to uh, Commissioner Murphy. Okay, let's launch it. And the first uh, team of hostage negotiators uh, in the world, I like to throw that in all the time, right, right. were established and graduated in March of 1973. So, yeah. That's fantastic. And then after that, the first commanding officer was Captain Bowles. So, uh, so Frank Bowles, who was a um, lieutenant at the time, he was the first commander, and he was the right guy for that job. Uh, anybody that knows Frank Bowles, he's, he's still with us. God, God bless his soul. He's 90 he must years. be in his 80s, right? He's 90 years old. The 90, wow. 90 years old. And I'm, I'm in touch with him like once a week. Uh, you know, you know, I, I want, that's me. I want, you know how they say like in your will, you have a do not resuscitate, a DNR. I have a DR, do resuscitate, because my wife wants me kept alive so she can keep collecting my pension, you know? There you go. And make sure I'm <laughs> Even if I'm 60 pounds and dribbling on myself, <laughs> keep me alive. Yeah, make you, the city pay. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so Frank was uh, H&T 1. And he's, in fact, uh, he still has that designation uh, from all of us. So. Have you have you spoken to him recently? All the time, yeah. The so time. He's, still, he, he's still yeah. lucid and he's still... Oh, oh yeah. You know, something I would love to have a guy like that on the show. He'd be what a what a character he must oh, be. Oh, well, he would steal the show. Let me tell you, so dynamic still, and he was the right guy to wow. sell this program in a time when, in 1973, when the rest of the cops say and the bosses, negotiations. We don't negotiate. Right, we don't, right. We don't do that. You know, so he had to really go out there and sell the program. So between he and Harvey's, uh, you know, guidelines, uh, psychological guidelines. They had a great amount of success. That first year, they had like maybe 12 jobs, I think it was. So um, when I retired, we were averaging, believe it or not, there were about 45 assignments per month. Most hostage teams across the country, because they teach across the country, most hostage teams across the country average maybe about 10 or 12 a year. Right. We were doing 45 a month. Granted, we have a population of eight and a half million people and another four million people coming to the city every day. This was you know, pre-COVID, of course. Right. So, um, the jobs consisted of actual hostage situations, which not not as dramatic as the George Day Afternoon Bank robbery hostage situation, but mostly domestic in nature. You know, maybe there's some alcohol involved and so on. Um, the barricades, which made up the majority of cases, so the barricaded perps, and the other classification of barricades was the barricade EDPs, so emotionally disturbed people, people who had mental health issues, and were now acting out in a manner where they were no longer responsible for themselves. So now we, the police, had to come responsible for them. Uh, you know, Jack. Fun. You know, Jack. You used the word um, emotionally disturbed people, and now they want to like clean that up and make the word even less threatening. And it's, it's according to James Shanahan, emotionally distressed. People. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the reason for that, though, I'm sure Jim explained it, um, was it's less of a diagnosable descriptor, if you will, whereas um, disturbed. That carries some baggage with it. A mental they illness. They yeah. That was the thinking of it. They, they did not right. go through it, but they were seriously considering doing it. Well, that. how about the old time cops? They just called them psychos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm on a psycho job. I got to go to psycho in Bellevue. You know, the family has that. What do you mean? Psycho? Right, right, right. He's not a psycho. He's our buddy. He's our, that's my dad. That's more kind of place to call me, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Kinder, gentler, right? Well, you know, Jack, that also, like, when you're talking about these EDP jobs and emotionally disturbed, mostly distressed, that brings us to the politics of today of trying to send a social worker to an EDP job. And politicians don't understand police work and they don't understand the way emotionally disturbed people act and react and can potentially be very, very violent. You yeah. want to touch upon that? Well, yeah. And, and you don't know um, really what to expect. And there's a whole tra training curriculum that goes into it. Right. Even uh, and the third, you know, well, the third category I mentioned the the hostage situations. I mentioned the the barricade situations, the perps and the EDPs. The third category, which brought our numbers up to forty five per month, were the suicidal jumpers. So that's another dynamic um, that you have to have a good understanding of. You don't teach the Clint Eastwood method of going up and I saying, <laughs> "You ever see that one, that scene in the movie?" He goes, "No, no, you're not grabbing me. You yeah. want to jump and splat? Go ahead." <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So, <laughs> you, ever show, you ever show that tape in your training? And, I do. I actually yeah. do. Because I, I do a whole presentation. When I do the five-day hostage class, uh, one block of instruction, it's about three hours. It's dedicated to uh, jumpers. Yeah. Hostage jumpers. And, and I give some of the background. There's even uh, psychology attached to that, which was done, research done by psychologists for the survivors of bridge jumpers. Right. Bridge jumper survivors, rather. And uh, some of the psychologists as to why they choose bridges as opposed to another method, maybe jumping off of a building, is um, because of uh, the beautiful panoramic view. Is what Jack, you, you, there's a lot of people that are just going to be listening to this. Okay. You want to describe the scene that we're looking at? It's a guy sitting on the corner of a building. You're talking to him and there's two of Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so that it was an interesting state. That was on uh, the top of Madame Tussauds Wax Museum on 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, West 42nd and 7th Avenue. So Times Square, perhaps uh, arguably one of the most busiest intersections in the world. And this was a summer day. And um, the backstory to this 19-year-old uh, young man was that uh, he was a runaway from somewhere in the Midwest, one of the Midwestern states. He, he gets on a bus and he, and he makes his way to New York City. <clears throat> I remember at one point, uh, just to fast forward a little bit and then I'll get back to it. Uh, I asked him about his parents. Uh, again, he was 19 years old. I said, where are your parents? And he says to me, I don't even know if they're dead or alive. Uh, his father had left when he was a young child, abandoned the family. His mother um, became a uh, drug addict, a junkie, you know, shooting heroin. And she had to turn trips to prostitution in order to uh, get the money for the drugs. So finally, uh, child services got involved. They took him out of the home. They put him in foster care. He went from one foster home to the next. And finally, when he was old enough, got enough money, he got a bus ticket and he came to New York City. So now he's here. He starts walking the streets and he realizes very quickly, he's got nowhere to go. He's right. got no money. He's got no food, no shelter. So he makes his way over to Covenant House, which is on 10th Avenue. Covenant House, uh, for those who might not know, is a homeless shelter for 21-year-olds and under. And they will take you in. It's mostly for run uh, runaways. And they'll take you in with no questions asked, but there's some chores that you must, you know, you must uh, participate in. So, for example, you have to be, you have to participate in house cleaning chores, cleaning the facility, uh, in the kitchen, you have to prepare food, you know, uh, and cook food. So 
Well, I'll call this guy Larry. That's not his real name. But Larry uh, was not doing any of that. And it's a Catholic-run facility. So the Monsignor gave him several, several warnings. The Monsignor was the director of the facility. So um, finally, after asking him so many times to participate, but instead, uh, Larry was just you know, hanging out on his, on his cot playing video games. So he starts wandering the streets again and uh, realizes again he's got nowhere to go, no money, no food. And he's able to bypass security at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. I'm sure the director of security heard about that one. He gets to the rooftop, as you see there, and, uh, and that's where I first encountered Larry. When I got there, I first got on the rooftop. I, I happened to be going to a meeting, speaking about John Jay earlier. Uh, Bill, I was on my way to John Jay to a meeting. So I'm on 10th, Ave <clears throat> 10th Avenue in my car, probably around 38th Street when this call comes over. So, oh my gosh, I'm five blocks away. Right. I, I get there, I'm, I'm there rather quickly. ECU had just gotten there. They were still setting up their, their lines and all that. So I got there rather quickly. And when I first went up there, uh, he's looking over the edge there, as you can see in that picture to the right. I'm, like, I'm seeing the whole you know, photo array. But, uh, he's looking over the, over the edge there. And I offered something that we know in the hospice world known as an empathetic stem. An empathetic stem is a short, concise statement, but it kind of demonstrates empathy. And I said to him, I said, looks like you might have had better days, huh? And he looks back at me and says, uh, Damn right I have. I said, yeah, I can see that. And I said, um, can I ask, ask you your name? And he tells me, I ain't telling you shit. So in hospice negotiators, negotiators are, um, are trained uh, not to accept no as no, but rather to, when you hear no, it gives the negotiator the opportunity to reevaluate uh, and adjust your strategy as to why you made that person say no. So when he said no to me, I had to reevaluate my approach to him. And I thought about it just for a second or two. And I said to him, then, okay, in that case, I'll just call you sir. <laughs> and that's how I proceeded. I eventually got it. So uh, I asked him, I said, can you tell me? Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to, first I said to him, I said, uh, I'd like to talk to you. And he says to me, people have been talking to me for my whole life. I'm tired of people talking to me. I don't want people to talk to me anymore. So again, he told me no. Right. Just so I looked at him and I said, "Okay, in that case, I'd like to listen to you." And he didn't know what to do with that. So finally, uh, he went quiet for a little bit. And finally, I got him to talk, talking to me, to, to me a little bit. And I asked him, I said, "What? Can you tell me what is so bad in your life that it requires a death sentence? What is so bad in your life?" And that you can't even begin to know anything about it. So I said, well, tell me, I want to listen to you. So I wind up, um, as, I'm, as I'm speaking to him, that's when I got into the issues about the parents. And, uh, you know, uh, I was asking him, you know, what do you want to do with your life beside this? He goes, I have no purpose in life. I have nothing. That's why I'm here. So as soon as he said that, one of my negotiators, uh, Detective Chris Breslin, formerly of the 10th Precinct, now with the 10th Squad, now he's uh, with Major Case, brilliant negotiator. He go, he's going through his knapsack on top of the rooftop, uh, and he pulls out a notebook with his writings in it. And, he's, and he reads it, and he says, hey, hey, Lou, take a look at this one paragraph. So I read it, and the paragraph said something, it's his handwriting, the paragraph said something to the effect of, we must serve as a beacon of light 
to the underprivileged children of the world to show them the right path. So I said to him, I said, Larry, did you just write this? And I read it. He says, where'd you get that? So well, we got it in your, in your backpack. We're trying to see who you are. And we came across this. Did you write this? He says, yeah, I wrote that. I said, well, then it appears that uh, what you just told me is not true. You said you have no purpose in life. This tells me that you do. You want to help underprivileged children of the world. And I can help you with that. I have resources that I can put you in touch with that maybe will help you serve as an intern to help underprivileged children. And maybe at one point, uh, you know, we'll get a paid decision with it. Right. But I can do with that right now. So finally, uh, the long and short of it was, uh, I tell him, if you come off that ledge, I said, not, I didn't say if, I said, when you come off that ledge, I'm going to give you my business call. We're going to take you over to Bellevue, Bellevue Hospital for evaluation. But you're very lucid, and uh, it's not going to, I promise you, it probably won't be more than a day or two that you're going to be inside. And when you get out, I want you to call me. This is my business card, so just my office information. That's all my office, right. office phone number, nothing personal. And uh, he looked at me, and finally, I think the last picture that you showed, uh, he was actually coming off that ledge. So it had to be something on a volunteer basis because we could not, there's a girder there, if you can see it. The issue could not get to him. Right. I certainly could not get to him. And by the way, I was, I was also harnessed in. So I wasn't going anywhere. He tried to pull me over, but um, so finally, yeah. The there's picture, there's yeah. the picture of him come, which must be an amazing feeling. Oh yeah, it really it really is. Every time you're able to do that, and finally uh, brought him off to Bellevue. So sure enough, though, just to finish the story, uh, about three days later, I'm in my office and the phone rings and it's and it's Larry. He goes, "Yeah, it's Larry. You told me to call you." I said, "Yeah, Larry." Thank you very much for calling. What happened? And he told me, he said, yeah, they gave me some medication. Uh, they told me to come back in three weeks. Uh, and uh, that's it. And they sent me on my way. I said, okay. So what do you want to do, Larry? Tell me. And he says, well, I have nowhere to go. I said, all right, would you like to go back to Covenant House? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, I, I know the Monsignor. Um, I'll call him, but I know what he's going to say. But you're going to have to follow those rules. Are you willing to do that? Otherwise, you're going to be wasting your time and his. He goes, yeah, I'll follow the rules. All right, I'll call you back. So I had his number on my caller ID. All right. So I called him back. I called him, uh, you know, the Monsignor, explaining what's going on. He knew what was going on. These pictures that you're showing, they were in the, in the newspaper. Uh, so he saw it in, in the front page of the papers. So he knew exactly what was going on. And I said, Monsignor, would you be willing to take him back? And I said, before you can say the next step, he says, I'll, I'll tell you. He always... Okay, Jack, uh, if he says he'll follow the rules, then I'm, I'm waiting for him. So I called back uh, Larry and I said, Go, he's waiting for you, but don't forget your promise. So I usually don't follow up on these jobs, uh, but this was kind of, you know, kind of close. Yeah, yeah. So I called him, I seen you the next day just to see if he even arrived. He goes, Yeah, Jack, he arrived, and uh, so far he's doing what he's supposed to do. Right now he's in the bathroom, in the bathrooms. He goes, I'll call you if anything else changes. I never heard back from him. So I hope Larry went on to a productive life. You, you hope so, man. That's a great yeah, story. So, yeah. So, so that's the story behind that one. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it's amazing. Like, um, you know, all of us, cops, sergeants, lieutenants, we go through the police department on patrol and you meet a lot of people that are in crisis, you know, and uh, you meet cops that are in crisis, you know. And I'm sure that um, all the things that you've learned uh, being a hostage negotiator has helped you 
in other areas of your life too. You know, I mean, just, I, I thought about Jack, how do you, negotiating for a car? Are you good with that? With the, using some of these hostage negotiation techniques? That's so good. I'm okay with it, but uh, they always get the better of the deal. <laughs> they always do. So. That's probably a different type of negotiation. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys are masters, you know. Yeah, I went yeah. to tell me it was a while ago. I, I bought a car. It was a new car. And I'm going back years ago. And the guy goes like, the salesman goes like this. My brother's going to kill me. The implication was that he's giving me a better price. Oh, yeah, he's giving you such a great deal. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I realized you know, that you're a nice guy. You got to be like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I want even lower than that. Right. You got to right. double down. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. It's crazy. You know, Jack, one of the things too, which I found amazing, and I'm sure a lot of other people will, is that they called upon you, uh, Detective Shanahan, and a, a detective named um, Lydia, oh, Lydia, uh, Lydia Martinez. Maybe. Martinez. Yeah. Uh, to go, yeah, I know, I, I know the story. To go to Guantanamo Bay yeah. and to teach the, the uh, U.S. servicemen over there as this negotiation. Joint, yeah, the American Joint Task Force. Yeah, that was a, such a big honor. And how that came about, uh, Bill, if you want to hear it. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. How, how that came about was one of our uh, negotiators at the time, uh, a guy by the name of Kevin Henley, Detective Kevin Henley, walked out of Staten Island. And uh, Kevin was a naval reservist. He, at the time, he was an ensign in the Navy, uh, in the reserves. And he was, every year, he had to go away for, uh, I guess, four or six weeks, whatever it was. And uh, he was stationed at Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay uh, Army Base in Cuba. And while he was there, there was an uprising in Camp Delta. Camp Delta is the detention facility that houses the detainees. And um, there was three, there's three different uh, uh, sublets of that, of that uh, encampment. So there's the uh, compliant, pretty much the compliant, the cooperative detainees in there, put in a dormitory set, set, you know, housing or setting. Right. And there's the kind of middle of the road and they have, you know, single cells by themselves. And then of course, there's the supermax. These are the real hardcore guys, right? Right. This, so an incident occurred in the compliant area, uh, in the dormitory setting where there's eight detainees that stay in one dormitory setting, eight different bunks and so on. And it was prearranged and what they did was was uh, put a coup suicide in place. In other words, they got one of the detainees, got a rope, put it on the, they had the metal uh, electrical piping for the, for the lights, tied it around that and pretend that he was hanging himself. So they're on constant video surveillance. So one of the, one of the naval uh, officers sees that, he alerts the SRT team, which is their version of the SWAT team. Right. They come running, rushing in, but it was a setup. As soon as they come in, they had previously had they had they had uh, so they had set up uh, soapy water and urine and feces like uh -huh. graphic, onto the floor. So when they came in, they started doing like the road runner on oil slick. Yeah, they started yeah. and fell down. You know the fans, the big uh, fans, the three blade fans. Yeah. And the fans, they had broken those three blades off, and they started using it as as kind of machetes. Oh man. And hacking at these you know, these four or five officers, uh, naval officers. And uh, they pretty much kind of took them hostage. So the rest of the team was activated. They got in there quickly, and they took these eight people into custody. But uh, but in the meantime, the interim, it was all networked in advance. These the rest of the team they started setting fires to the place and causing riots inside the facility. So enter Kevin Hamley, who was there at the time, a trained hostage negotiator. 
he goes in there and working uh, to uh, a translator with the, the head imam who just spoke Arabic was able to get this thing quelled almost as quickly as it started. The commander of the base at the time, um, gentleman by the name, he was an admiral, three-star admiral at the time, Harry B. Harris. He went on to be the ambassador uh, to Japan, actually. Um, he was so impressed with what Kevin did. He said to him, Kevin, I don't know how you did that, but more importantly, how do we get our people trained in what you just did? Ah, the NYPD, you gotta call this guy Cambria, you know? Wow. So, uh, and so the phone call came in. Uh, one of his commanders calls my office, uh, um, a, a captain, I think it was. And I uh, said, yeah, you know, she tells me, Kevin had already called and told me what happened, you know. And we'd love to have, uh, you know, hostage negotiation clamps here at the base. Would you be willing to sort be a big honor, but it's not up to me, certainly. So I referred him to uh, Commissioner Kelly. Ray Kelly was the commissioner at the time to his office. And he said, uh, you know, anybody knows about Ray Kelly. He's a former uh, Marine Corps colonel. Right. So, you know, military, big military guy. He said, yeah, let's do it. So um, I was given the green light. So, well, I can't do this by myself. Well, who do you want to bring? So, as I told you, I like to to James Shanahan. Let's time. find Shanahan. Where is he? Yeah. <laughs> Funny story about Shanahan. He didn't, have his, he didn't have a passport at the time. Oh, man. So, I mean, like uh, the Counterterrorism Bureau. Uh, like in record speed, made a phone call that afternoon. He had his passport, right? And then Lydia, you know, may she rest in peace. I guess we can say it. Uh, Lydia uh, had some demons that no one, no one knew about, and she saw fit to uh, take her life. Right, I know. Uh, that was a crushing blow at all of us, me in particular, because I worked so closely with her. Right. But uh, I grabbed Lydia, and uh, the three of us went, uh, and we did this five-day class. There was another detective from uh, from. Uh, Counterterrorism named Eddie Sloan, who, who came with us, but he was uh, working you know, with the intel part of, of, of all that, you know, getting uh -huh. some intelligence from them and exchanging information and so on. So, and so that's how that happened. So I got to tell you just one more quick uh, story about that. Um, at the end of the week, um, I would give. Um, they'd get, they'd get there'd be an exam. So of course, I'm not going to give a big exam to the, the military, right? Right. But they really bought into the principles. Of negotiation because that's something that was foreign to them. Same thing with the go with the uh, with the military negotiations. We don't we don't do that. Right, we don't negotiate. We yeah. just drop napalm, you know. Right. Uh, so um, at the end of the week, their their exam was I made it easy for them. I said everybody in the class has to get up in front of the class and do a five minute speech. Anything you want it could be about hostage related or anything you want. And the idea was uh, behind that was uh, when you're on a, on a door. You're on stage, and make no mistake about it. Everybody's watching you. Yeah. If you're going to be nervous about it, then let's get over that now in a clinical setting in the classroom. So one of the uh, one of the um, it was also an ensign uh, gets up and he starts telling the story. He goes, you know, about five years earlier from this time of the class, he says my my brother, who had some mental health issues, was on the other side of that door. He came from a small little rural town in the Midwest. And he said, um, and the negotiators that came were obviously not very well trained. They were making jokes. Yeah, come on out, we're gonna have a beer, you know? Yeah. When I, when, I, when I teach the class, I get into uh, active listening skills and about dealing with people's emotions, you know? So and that's what we taught that week. So he says, uh, and, and they kept doing that. And finally we heard the shot go off. We had killed himself. And he says, I honestly believe that if the NYPD hostage negotiation team was there, it might have turned out differently. So 
you know, very big honor for yeah. us. Yeah. that to us, you know. So uh, they, they did buy into that, you know. Not everybody does, but I got to tell you, bro, it does work. That's amazing. And then also you taught the uh, West Point cadets who were seniors, right? Yeah, yeah. Another yeah. amazing, you know, talk about putting something on your resume. Oh, yeah, Guantanamo Bay, West Point cadets, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, and the same thing. So when we got back from Gitmo, it generated a little media attention, you know. Uh -huh. And about uh, about three or four weeks after I got back, I got a phone call from the commandant of the West Point military camp in upstate New York. And uh, he says, yeah, I saw what you guys did in, in uh, you know, Gitmo. That's amazing. Thank you very much, commandant. He goes, listen, I'd like to uh, do something for my senior class cadets just before they graduate. I can't do five days, but maybe a, an eight-hour overview of, of the principles of negotiation. That'd be amazing. I'd love to do that. Again, I referred to Commissioner Kelly. He said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, the last eight years... No, Jack, just to interrupt you for one second, that's also a star on the badge of the NYPD yes. that they're sending one of their guys or their team yes. to teach West Point cadets, Guantanamo Bay. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's... That's amazing. No, it really was. What an honor. Yeah. So uh, for the last eight years before I retired. They should year, send you to so Congress now. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> to talk them off the ledge. <laughs> so, uh, James, uh, myself, and, and Lydia uh, would go, and then you know, Lydia left us, and then it was pretty much James and I would go uh, pretty much every year and, and do that thing for them. You know. That's amazing. <laughs>